Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 14. Last week, I covered Mount Carmel, the place where Nepotdor, one of the allied northern Canaanite kingdoms, was possibly located. But the mountain is more well known for the stories associated with the prophet Elijah. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm beginning with another place mentioned in Joshua 11, the waters of Merom. And with that, let's get started. In Joshua 11, after we're told, to both a lesser and greater degree of detail, who among the northern Canaanite kingdoms allied against the Israelites, we're next given where they assembled their combined armies. Specifically, that after the kings of northern Canaan came out to face the Israelites, the text tells us that the Canaanites joined their forces and camped together at the waters of Merom. I've briefly touched on these waters of Merom before, but now's probably the best place for a deeper dive into the shallow depths of this lake. The context of Joshua 11 at least points us in the right direction concerning the location of the lake. The precise location is about 10 miles, 16 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee. By definition, it's along the Jordan River, though not the place we generally think of as being in that river's valley, at least not in a biblical context. In that regard, in both Testaments of the Bible, the Jordan Valley is where that river flows between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, so south of the Sea of Galilee. This part of the river, though, is north of the Sea of Galilee. From all of its various tributaries and from the generally defined source of the Jordan River in the anti-Lebanon mountains to all of the other wadis, streams, creeks, and other small rivers north of Galilee. Most of these flow through what this part of the text calls the waters of Merom. Modernly, just in case you're wondering, or have seen it on a map, it's known as Lake Hula. This, quite naturally, is why this part of the Jordan Valley is also known as the Hula Valley. So, before the waters, the larger valley, because, well, the northern Canaanite armies, to be pedantic, didn't camp in the waters, but beside the waters, so actually on dry land in the Hula Valley. Unlike the portion of this region south of the Sea of Galilee, this part of the geography is above sea level. Not by much, though. Generally less than 200 feet, about 70 meters. It's situated between mountain ranges and the slopes that lead to the peaks, with the Golan Heights to the east and the Upper Galilean Naphtali Mountains to the west. In between and amidst all of this are various foothills which serve to direct what rainfall lands in the region towards the Upper Jordan River. All of these geographic features then channel this water towards the Sea of Galilee, making it the thriving ecosystem that has served those living on its shores for thousands of years. But before most of this water gets to that sea, it makes a really slow passage through Merrill. The climate here is like that of most of the interior region, 
if only different due to the change in elevation. Hot, dry summers and cool, rainy winters. It's these winters, more specifically the rain, that leads to the seasonal flooding of the Jordan, flooding that is referenced many times in the Old Testament. The surrounding mountains shield the region from the moderating effects of a large body of water, in this case, the Mediterranean Sea. As the crow flies, the Med is only 25 miles, 40 kilometers to the west. Without the mountain ranges in between, this is by far close enough to temper the climate. Add to the mix relatively tall peaks, and you end up with more extreme seasonal and daily temperature fluctuations than in coastal areas. But that's not all. There's also extreme variation in the amount of rainfall with some locations getting 31 inches, 80 centimeters a year, and others, not terribly distant, receiving only half that amount. Just north of the valley, on the slopes of Mount Hermon, nearly twice the amount of rainfall and even frequent snowfall can be found. What does all of this mean? Some places are far more conducive to plant, animal, and human habitation than others. As it likely was then, and certainly is now, the valley is a center for agricultural production, all of this owing to the rain and flowing water. The first crops there are what you would expect in the region and period, corn, wheat, barley, lentils, and the like. As time passed, and during the Greek period, rice was introduced, and this was a near-perfect crop for the shallow lake. Then, with the Arab conquest in the 7th century AD, cotton and sugarcane. In another 1,000 years, crops from North America were brought to the wetland, such as corn and sorghum. The agriculture wasn't limited to crops. In the biblical era, there were the typical sheep and goats, both of these present throughout the biblical period due to their suitability in all of the various climates. Also in the region were oxen. The Muslim conquest in the 7th century led to the introduction of water buffalo, which were used for milk and cheese, along with pulling plows and carts. So abundant is the natural plant life and water that this small area, meaning the valley, and it's only about 68 square miles, 177 square kilometers, that it's a stopping point for migrating birds. Birds flying from as far away as the further reaches of Africa, Europe, and Asia to the other further reaches. But there's a downside to that much water. Mosquitoes. And the disease they bring. More on that in a bit. All of this rainfall feeds natural springs, flows into swamps, and keeps the Sea of Galilee full. More on these springs in a minute, too. All of this where, just miles away, life and thirst are a daily struggle, both extremes found within the same region. Essentially, great variations. While it's true today, it was even more true in ancient history that springs and fresh water were strategically important. Wars fought over the control of this water. This finally gets me to the waters of Merom. 
In the biblical text, it's only found in this one chapter of Joshua, which is interesting and likely points to that most of the history of the Old Testament, especially that covered in detail, was centered on the region south of the Sea of Galilee, which makes the biblical portion of the history of the waters as simple as possible to cover, and gets me to the outside record. First, a bit of etymological clarification. Like I mentioned a few minutes ago, in Joshua, it's called the Waters of Merom, and what's left of it today is known as Lake Hula. In between, though, well, really before Joshua, 14th century BC Egyptians called it Lake Samchuna. Josephus knew it as Samacontas, and given that he was recording this in the 1st century AD, this is likely what most of the New Testament cast of characters would have called it, too. The slightly later Talmud called it the Sea of Sumchi. As for the waters of Merom, this may refer to a more specific location on the shores of the lake, and that would be a spring to the west. To me, at least, this makes some sense, as in other places in the biblical text, the phrase waters of tend to be natural springs where people, and in this case military troops, can gather and store up the hydration they're going to need for the impending battle. As for the lake itself, it is, or was, about three miles square, eight square kilometers, and really shallow, only five feet, a meter and a half deep, in the summer, and twice as deep in the wet winter which also has the effect of expanding the size and shoreline. Given the abundance of fresh water, it shouldn't be surprising that people had lived on the shore of the lake since the prehistory period, to the point that archaeologists have uncovered artifacts thought to date to before 10,000 BC. The earliest settlement in the valley area is from between 10 and 9,000 BC. Archaeological finds from the area around the lake tend to show that people of the era exploited the fish found in the lake, fish that included catfish, tilapia, and carp, with some of the carp being as large as three feet over a meter. This makes sense to me as just downstream, and likely from that era through the period of both the Old and New Testaments, and even today. The local population relies on fishing in the Sea of Galilee for sustenance. You can't gather together fishers of men from fishermen if there are no fish to be caught. Also from the period, uncovered artifacts show that the local population had developed tools to do what we would consider mundane tasks, such as lighting fires and cracking nuts. As time passed, people settled and technology advanced. This led to the valley developing agriculturally and attracting more permanent settlers. What came next should be obvious. Trade. The Hula Valley was an important intersection on the vital trade route connecting the large commercial center of Damascus to the north with the eastern Mediterranean coast and Egypt. During the Bronze Age, about 2000 B.C., the cities of Hazer and Lachish were settled and grew at key locations on this route. All of this in the era just before the Israelites showed up. Of course, they crossed the Jordan and picked off the kingdoms to the south, 
and towards the coast. They then turned their attention to the north and defeated that region too. The outside record seems to indicate that at this time, the entire interior region came under the control of the various Israelite tribes, altogether in a rather loose confederation. As for the area immediately around Merom, Hula, your pick, it was in the territory allocated exclusively to the tribe of Nephtali, but only marginally. Just to their east, and just past the banks of the northern Jordan River, were the Arameans. This would last, especially in the northern reaches of their control, until the rise of the Neo-Assyrians in the 8th century BC, when they were led by a king who's becoming a constant figure in this part of the podcast, Tiglath-Pileser III. As he took territory from the Israelites, one of the first places to fall was this lake, and the Hula Valley in general. That this location was a target shouldn't be a surprise, owing to both the trade in agriculture and the fresh water, a trifecta of strategic importance. With the rise and fall of the various regional empires, the Neo-Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Seleucids, and the Romans, the region would trade hands frequently. One thing of note, while the Seleucids were in control, they established the town of Seleucia Somalias on the shore of the small lake. It was in this town, and during the rule of Alexander Janius, so the early 1st century BC, that a remnant of the Pharisees found refuge. This was after the Pharisees led a bloody revolt that almost caused them to be wiped from history. But on his deathbed, Janius told his soon-to-be widow to seek a reconciliation with them. It was from the city that the movement known as the Pharisees would begin to grow again, all leading up to the era of Christ. Of course, I'll have more on this in the future. The history of the area around the lake followed that of the region in general, from the Greeks to the Romans to the Muslims, followed by a back and forth between the various Islamist leaders and the Crusaders, eventually leading to the Ottomans, who would control the region around the lake until World War I. During the latter part of this period, in the 19th century, the area around Lake Hula was generally inhabited by semi-nomadic Bedouins. When they weren't nomadic, they supported themselves by weaving papyrus mats, along with the more typical agriculture and trade. This papyrus was sourced from the lake. About these mats, there were traditionally two distinct styles. The first were fine mats for interior use, and the second, longer, coarser mats were used for constructing huts and shelters. It seems, like many things in the pre-industrial revolution world, numerous uses could be found for locally sourced materials and production. In the period, a British adventurer, John McGregor, who was in the river and lake in his canoe, the Rob Roy, so iconic that many future canoes of the same style would be called by the same name. Anyway, while in the waters, he was captured by the local Bedouins. As luck would have it, this would eventually lead to the best, at least until that date, maps of the region. 
and brought the lake to the forefront of Western European curiosity, which led to something else, the recognition that malaria was wreaking havoc on the locals. Other travelers to the area in that period recorded more about the region, even noting the native wildlife, including panthers, leopards, bears, wild boars, wolves, foxes, jackals, hyenas, gazelles, and otters. Which gets me to the beginning of the 20th century. In 1908, the Ottomans permitted a French company to draw up plans to drain the marsh, but nothing of substance became of this. After World War I, the former lake would be controlled by the British as part of Mandatory Palestine. They would then allow a business known as the Zionist Palestine Land Development Company to formulate more plans to drain the area and then irrigate the valley. But this didn't happen either. In hindsight, though, we do have to take into account how turbulent this period was. The Ottomans made the wrong allies in the First World War, and the post-war Brits had their hands full not only in the Middle East, but all over the globe. It wasn't until the Nation of Israel was established after World War II, and after the war in the region that immediately followed, that the lake was drained. The draining process began in 1951 and was not finished until 1958. As part of the overall initiative, and to aid in the draining, the downstream portion of the Jordan was both deepened and widened, allowing it to carry more water. Also, two new canals were dug that diverted the Jordan River that was north of the Hula Valley all of this creating prime arable land and dispensing with the disease-carrying mosquitoes. But the environmental impact of this on the local ecosystem, along with the migrating birds, weren't fully considered. Overall, and not only in Israel, but throughout much of the world, and especially among civil engineers, the draining of the lake was seen as a great achievement disease reduction combined with an increase in agricultural production, the classic win-win, until someone noticed that several species of fish and plants found only in the area went extinct. This was thought to include a species of frog known as the hula painted frog. More on that in a minute. There were other unintentional consequences, and these weren't eliminated by the creation of the preserve. Only after the draining was it discovered that the lake had served as a catch basin for chemical fertilizers used upstream. Exasperating the problem was the new farmland that was also being fertilized. All of this would then flow, with much less impediment, into the Sea of Galilee, almost immediately having the impact of lowering its water quality and reducing the fish stocks, and therefore catches. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And that wasn't all. All of the vegetation that had been growing in and around Lake Hula was plowed under. In the dry season, this led to much of the top layer of soil being blown away by the strong winds that frequent the area. As if that wasn't enough, after it was drained, much of the formerly wet soil was now very dry peat dry enough that it ignited frequently, fires that were hard to impossible to control. While there was a bit of hand-wringing over this, Israel sprung to action, 
creating a small, meaning just over a square mile, 3.5 square kilometers, nature preserve. Also, as part of the project, a portion of the former lake was reflooded in an attempt to revive at least a bit of the ecosystem. In this revived wetland, natural papyrus plants were reintroduced. And it's working, at least on a small scale. The latest stats show this was at least partially successful, as an estimated 500 million migrating birds stop in the valley annually. This includes tens of thousands of cranes that rest there as part of their migration from Finland to Ethiopia when fall turns to winter. And, like I alluded to a minute ago, the native painted frog, thought to have been extinct at least as far back as 1996, suddenly reappeared in 2011. I could find no explanation how this happened, though it's likely as simple as a few of the frogs remained hidden in places not easily reached by biologists. Do note, though, that these frogs are not quite thriving yet, as only 10 or so have been counted. And that's it for the waters of Merom, and it allows me to press forward through Joshua 11. After the kings of northern Canaan encamped at the waters of Merom, maybe the next day, they fought with Israel and lost. But not just on the battlefield. The Israelites pursued the retreating Canaanites as far as Great Sidon and Misri Fufmaim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. I covered Sidon in Chapter 2, Episode 72, released in October 2017, a time that now seems so far away. Mizpah is much more recent, meaning in last week's episode, which leaves me with misery fafmaim. Of course, in this part of the text, the Israelites would chase the fleeing Canaanites at least as far as this place which leaves us wondering how far it really was and why did the Israelites stop when they got there. A couple of chapters later, in Joshua 13, we're told that Mizrifahmaim was probably part of Sidonian territory, which explains why the Israelites discontinued their pursuit there. As far as the Sidon, it was on the coast, in the modern country of Lebanon. As for the actual location of Mizrifahmaim, there's no one agreed-upon place. The general thought is that it was on the coast, and given the association with Sidon, this makes sense. It may have been mentioned in the Egyptian execration text, written around 1800 BC. I covered these inscriptions a couple of episodes ago. These were, at a high level, lists of the places Egypt at the time considered their foes. Essentially places the Egyptian priests would curse. Another potential location for Mizrifahmaim is Kurabit Musharifa. But there's an archaeological problem with this site. Uncovered artifacts from there date to the early Bronze Age and even include a wall around the city. But the battles with the Israelites were later, in the late Bronze Age, and nothing from that period has been found at this site. So, likely, but not definitely, not there. Last, there's the thought that Mizrifahmaim was not a city, but a place, potentially the border with the Sidonians. This could be true, 
but it would be awkward to say the Israelites chased the Canaanites as far as Sidon and the border with Sidon. Possible, just not probable. And that's it for Misery Fachmate. As Joshua 11 wraps up, we're told that Joshua took all the land, the hill country, and all of the Negeb, and all of the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Bel Gad, in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. I've covered all of these places save two, Baal Gad and Mount Halak. Not much is known about either, so I should be able to squeeze both in and still make my self-imposed 30-minute time limit. First up is Baal Gad, obviously a Canaanite town in the modern country of Lebanon and at the foot of Mount Hermon, placing it near the source of the Jordan River. Its only biblical mentions are in the next three chapters of Joshua. The city was likely the northernmost point of Joshua's conquest. Clearly, its name is derived from the Canaanite deity Baal. As for the Gad, this could have been the Israelite tribe of Gad, and the name was assigned at some point later, simply a combination of the two. As for the exact location of the city, it's not known though a place known as Hasbaya, which itself was on the Wadi El-Tim, has been suggested, as has been Baal-Bak and Baal-Haman. And that's this unknown location of Baal-Gad. Last to be covered today is Mount Halak. Like Baal-Gad, it represented the limit of Joshua's conquest, this time the southern limit. Its name translates to the bear are smooth mountain, likely meaning no vegetation can be found on it, and it may not have been terribly rocky. Joshua 11 also tells us that it was on the way to Seir. It was probably on the western side of the Arabah. Both Numbers and Joshua seem to indicate that it was related to Akreba, which was a pass through the mountainous region. This reference helps to narrow down where Mount Halak may have been. Modernly, there's a mountain pass known as the Nag Asafa, which also means the pass of the smooth rock. But it's not just the name that makes it a candidate location. It's also along the way to Hebron and Seir. As for the smoothness of the mountain, there is a noticeable hill in this area named Jabul Ma and this hill is made of limestone. Limestone is a rather fragile sedimentary rock, which means nothing grows on the hill, and while it isn't completely smooth, so much of the limestone has crumbled down that it's not exactly rocky either. So, this mountain does fit the description of Mount Halak, and provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll continue pushing through Joshua, you don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... 
be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.